If you're looking for inspiration and challenge in the world of early years and Key Stage 1 education, then you've just found it. Welcome to the Early Excellence Podcast. Hi everybody, Andy Burt here. Welcome along to episode 56 of the Early Excellence Podcast. This week we have a thought-provoking interview with Dr. Mina Shonkbaye. As part of the interview, we talk about the importance of self-regulation, co-regulation and meeting children's emotional needs as well. At the start of the interview, Minna explained when and where her interest in neuroscience and brain development began. I think it's a direct result of my chaotic childhood experiences um, without wanting to depress anyone. It was quite a tough childhood. It was very, very, very chaotic, um, scary. But in that scariness was also an exhilaration. I vividly recall thinking, why is it so quiet? And then boom, you know, my dad would kick off and, you know, physically abuse my mum and on it would go and, and it and it was tough. It it was horrid in a lot of places, but strangely, it was also some of the best moments of my life because I, you know, my mum was there and she was a protective, fierce, fiercely protective force in my life as a child. And and, and you know, she said it just yesterday when she was here. It's because of my love for you that you were able to thrive. And I'm like, yeah, it's true. You you were. And if had it not been for her, amidst all the abuse she tolerated I, I I think my trajectory would have been very different and in answer to your question I think for me it's understanding that there are millions of children like me who get overlooked or misunderstood as quiet or a daydreamer or, or, as, or as thick I was often called dim but I wasn't I was just traumatized and nobody knew it back then so I want to be able to be that conduit of, you know, providing accessible knowledge that's contemporary, robust, but easy for everybody to understand and work with, not just academics and students, but for parents, primary caregivers, foster carers, all of us. We're all, you know, implicated in this one way or another. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And actually, that idea of, of putting putting the, across those key messages around neuroscience in a very accessible way is, is something that I think is a real strength of your work. I think that really comes across. Um, I love the way that your books are really accessible um, because I think that previously, um, and certainly you know, for myself as a, with my teaching background, I think previously at times there has been a disconnect between research and kind of what you know people will will write books about research and there's all sorts of of research out there of course but a disconnect between that and then sometimes what happens within classroom practice you know that you meet I used to meet teachers um as you know when I was teaching who would sort of say well that's all very well what it says in that book but that's you know you're in the you're at the chalk face now kind of you know that sort of mentality whereas what I really like about your book and and the rest of your work also is that you you bring it um you bring it to the the messages to the fore in a very practical and accessible way can you can you tell us a bit about how you how you write how you go about that process of writing 
I write as if I'm going to write for me. How would I understand it? And I, I don't, we don't need any unnecessary jargon. We need, yes, okay, you put the correct terms in there. I'm, I'm very much passionate about that because while I was listening to you talk there, it brought to mind the few academics I get loggerheads with about terminology and, and what should be used and why. And I find their responses very patronising and it only serves to keep the workforce and parents, primary caregivers, families in a place. And that is we as academics, you know, bestow upon you nuggets of knowledge that we think you can handle intellectually. But the rest, it's not for you because you're not clever enough. And this is time and time again, like terms like self-regulation, being dysregulated, tantrum, no, you know, the correct term, for example, is not a tantrum, it's being dysregulated. And how dare we say that parents and families and, and, you know, level two students, for example, are not intelligent enough to grasp it. It's how we present it. So going back to your question, I just try to present things in a very simplistic way, a way that anybody could understand, child, adult, academic, non-academic. And, and that's, I, I think it served me well, because I do get generally you know positive feedback from a you know diverse group of readers yeah absolutely absolutely I, I think one of the things that comes across again loud and clear in your work is is that that sort of searching for a balance I suppose as part of you know for people who work with young children um whether that be in a nursery environment or whether that be within within a school environment that within education we talk a lot about what what we're teaching children you know the, the content if you like the the curriculum content and the and the knowledge but what comes across I think a lot in your work is that actually we've got to think kind of behind that beyond that that we've got to think about the the kind of the how children go about learning and and what 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 underpins that that learning process and and that's about those uh, about uh, about all sorts of things isn't it about well-being it's about self-regulation it's about how we feel about ourselves um could you tell tell us a little bit about about all of all of that that you know that self-regulation and emotional well-being and how important they are it's absolutely critical to life itself but for many years and we we're talking about this on linkedin actually the other day they're viewed as soft skills so they're not important why aren't they important because you can't measure them but actually you can measure them they're evident for anybody to see if you are trained to to look at a child in that way and if we are not feeling psychologically secure if our basic needs have not been met if we are in a pretty much chronic state of toxic stress and therefore fight or flight we simply cannot access those brain regions that are more required to help us to learn and behave in ways that are pro-social and here I'm referring chiefly to the prefrontal cortex which now in every opportunity I get be it on tv radio or books I'm going to remind people that that brain region takes 26 years to fully develop and it's highly dependent on the interactions of that child in their early years of life. And it's particularly sensitive to stressors. So it becomes wired according to those children's experiences. And that could be, as we know, a force for good or it can be, you know, a negative force. And we have to be mindful of that. I cannot understand how 
initial teacher training, for example, and early years qualifications and training doesn't have this knowledge embedded as standard. And I make sure I put it in absolutely everything because we expect so much of our very young children without actually nurturing them in the correct way. We bypass that, what Dan Seagal calls the downstairs brain. Oh yeah, it's soft, soft skills stuff, not important. And then we go, right, bosh, right to the top of the brain, higher order thinking, executive functioning skills, uh-uh, big red cross, it's offline. If that child is in any state of distress, if they are sensory <clears throat> sensitive and they've become hyper aroused, or they're hypo aroused, you know, they're not stimulated enough, there isn't enough going on in that environment. It's everybody's responsibility to understand this stuff. And it doesn't need to be, neg- you know, difficult, sorry. And the way I see it, if I start getting bored or I go, um, I'm not getting that, and I have to force myself to understand and make it seem interesting, I park that, Andy. I'm like, no, if I'm not feeling it, my readers aren't going to feel it, for example. But I want to focus on child mental health and how brain development is impacted by that because they've survived a pandemic. They're now living through cost of living crisis. I'm being asked to give advice on TV about talking to our children about a different Christmas. And, you know, we forget how resilient our children are but it comes at a cost to their mental health if we are not there as co-regulators to help them manage those emotions and those behaviours. Again, like you're saying, well, what about self-reg? Self-reg, if we can't self-reg, for me, it's a matter of life or death. There's an article that I like to discuss with interviewers, and it's about the signs of self-harm in 15, 16-year-olds being evident 10 years before. And that's massive because that has implications for every early years worker, for every parent, primary caregiver, because it shouts to me that we are not co-regulating our children adequately enough. And left unaddressed, as I keep saying, this manifests as poor mental health. And if you can't self-reg, inevitably, many do tend to self-harm as a way of soothing themselves. And we need to stop that from happening. And we have to stop it in the earliest years of life. Yes, I, and I think you're absolutely right. We often talk about, about self-harm as an issue for teenagers, don't we? And 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 it's right. It, it, it is to a certain extent, you know, and young, and young adults. But actually, that's not when the issues start very often. Um, and, and I think you're absolutely right to highlight that, that, that the time that we have with young children in those first years of life is absolutely crucial. Um, I think the work of Professor Farrell Arvins on well-being and involvement that we use a lot as part of our training, it, it's something that I think people have used quite a lot and, and successfully to identify children who have that low level of well-being and and to consider actually which of which of our group of children have that low level of well-being and to consider perhaps what we can do about it but i i think in many of the settings that, that i work with i i think there's often a bit of a gap around actually what does the adult need to do so we think about following a child's interest, for example, we think about getting to know them perhaps through home visits or, or through building a relationship with parents and all of that is great. But I think there's a, there's a bit of a blind spot and I think the blind spot is around something that you mentioned just before and that is co-regulation. 
I think that's something that we really don't do enough of. I, I think that takes real skill on behalf of the teacher or practitioner. And it's something that actually we, we don't, I think there's a gap there in terms of teacher training and in terms of training for, for practitioners who work with very young children around co-regulation. Could you tell us a bit, a little bit about those skills? Would that be okay? Yeah, I mean, I've got an acronym of it in my book somewhere, CoReg, and and it's about being aware and open, aware of and open to that child's emotions in the moment. So it's removing any judgment. It's being there to listen without wanting to dive in and fix because that child isn't broken in that moment. They have become dysregulated. They've been triggered by something or somebody. And we just need to be there for that child to contain them emotionally. And I find the power of listening isn't given enough credit at all in this because we, we as adults, if somebody listens to us when we're at a low ebb, oh, wow, they've actually listened to me. They can repeat back what I just said. I still find that deeply moving, Andy. And for a child whose nervous systems are developing directly in response to how we treat them, especially in those moments of distress, that is absolutely invaluable. So it's about observing them, listening to them, looking at the body language. What are they agitated about? Tell them, I'm listening. I understand you. That couldn't have felt nice. You know, we it's like Seagull and Bruce Perry and the likes, you know, always remind us we connect before we seek to move on and problem solve with that child. So for me, co-regulating is, is simply being there for that child. But obviously we know it's a lot more complex and it's a lot more involved because we need to be in a psychologically safe space. It might be that that child has triggered us. They might have opened a childhood wound for all we know, you know, through their aggression or what they've said to us. They might have physically attacked us or hurt themselves or somebody else. But we must withhold judgment. We certainly do not give out consequences as part of co-regulating. And this is another thing I get thrown at me all the time. But they need consequences in order to learn. No, they don't. They need to know that all emotions are welcome here but not all behaviours are. But again, we need to seek to soothe them, to reassure them, because remember, a child of two, three, four, five, they're small in stature and they're letting rip with this massive emotion. That's scary for them because in that moment, fight or flight's kicked in, cortisol, stress hormone, adrenaline. There isn't a massive lion chasing them, but something's triggered them. We need to call it. We need to help them cool down to literally put that lid back on. And then that prefrontal cortex gets back online. We can start to talk about, hey, you know, what happened? Tell me, what can we do differently next time? Well, look, how about if there's an adult right next to you, you know, you can go to that adult, we can go for a walk, we can take some slow, deep breaths together. That slow, deep breaths is the one autonomic function we have that we can actually control. That's our superpower when we're co-regulating. And I do that with my young daughter. I get on my knees and I you know, if it's okay with her, say, come, shall we hug? And her heart next to my heart and the beating through the slow breathing, that becomes regulated and in sync. That's massive. We need more of this. But in ITT, initial teacher training and early years qualifications, we're not taught. There isn't a big chunk in there of, about co-regulation, nor does it run through as the golden thread. 
So in the qualification I've written, level two and four for cash, I've put it in there. Absolutely, I've front-loaded co-reg because a child cannot hope to learn self-regulation skills if we do not co-regulate and show them how it is done. But again, I'm going to go back and say that puts the onus on us to check in with our mental health. Honestly, what's going on, what's going on with us at home? Have we got a support network? Do we have our in-the-moment self-reg strategies that we can lean on? In the setting, if I have been triggered by a child, is there someone else I can speak with to take over if I really can't manage? You know, we've got to start having open conversations about mental health and how we can better co-regulate. But again, in my book, there is the co-reg acronym. So it's how we communicate, observe, we reason with, and empathize and guide that child in the moment and you're thinking baby that's a lot of things to do but actually it's empathy isn't it hopefully we would be guided by empathy when a child is in distress no matter how much you think oh my goodness they're screaming they're about to hit somebody but that immediate in the moment listening to that child validating their emotions I can see you're upset let's sit down or let's go for a walk let's talk about it we look at what's going on, we observe, we think about well, what are the triggers for this child. Then once everything has calmed down a little bit, we try to reason with them. So we try and talk about alternative ways of expressing that anger or frustration instead of, say, slamming a door. What else could we do? We can journal it out. We can talk to a trusted adult. We can do some deep breathing together. But that empathy element, that's so important because we don't want to tell them off simply for feeling, no matter how difficult that is and how conditioned we are to. It's about empathizing. I understand. I'd feel angry, too, if such and such was done to me. And then through that guiding, we talk them through in the moment strategies. Like we said, it might be having a self-reg space in your setting. The settings I've worked with have got beautiful self-reg spaces that they've built with the children for those times of need where they can go and recalibrate. Do you want to go in the self-reg space? Do you want to go indoors, outdoors? Just time to help them regroup, take some deep breaths, calm down, and then they are able to get on with their day. But reprimanding them in, in the moment when they're at their worst psychologically is the worst thing we can do. So instead, we have to seek to co-regulate to help put that lid back down because they flip their lids right, according to Dan Seagal. And then they can get on with their serious business of play, learning and being pro-social. And remember, with that individual child, you will do one way of co-regging, but then the next child will demand another set of co-reg skills. It's your knowledge of that child that will lead how you co-reg with that child. But again, my book is jam-packed full of strategies adopted by early years, practitioners in a range of settings, social workers, one-to-one staff with children with special educational needs. So do have a look in there. It's, it's packed full of like, practical strategies. One of the things that I really love about your work is that you talk very openly about the importance of of, of love, of, of love for children, of of them feeling loved within the setting. And, and I think that that is something that we don't talk about enough. You know, maybe it's a kind of, I don't know, a, a sort of a bit of a Britishness kind of thing. I, I want of a better phrase, you know, that kind of, you know, we, we sometimes do keep our, our emotions very close to us. And I guess sometimes when we're when working with young children, actually, we 
we shouldn't do. You know, that, that actually that's not necessarily healthy. That's not necessarily supporting the child in the best way to do that. Does, does that make sense? Oh, completely. And I think it's it's around uh, it's accountability, isn't it? It's, oh, my God, I don't want to be done for anything untoward, i.e. Mm. safeguarding concerns. And that's why we've got the no touch policies in some settings. Um, some mm. managers being absolutely adamant. No, if a child is distressed, we give them a soft toy or a cushion. Hell no. I'm going to pick up that child and I'm going to hug them so tightly if they want. If they're like, no, I don't want to, then absolutely. But if they're asking for a cuddle and they're distressed, the worst thing an adult can do is go, here's a cushion. Are you having a laugh? Like, I don't want a cushion when I'm upset. I want to hug someone tight. I want to be, it's that being held physically, isn't it? Because then you know you're being protected. Those arms are around you. You're safe. Of course, we don't impose a hug on a child. It's not if you want a hug as an adult and you're going to go hug up a child. Not at all. That isn't appropriate. But these no hug policies, you know, I, I just find it really depressing. And I think, you know, you, you want to express love for a child, express it. How do you, you know, so many of these children go home to parents whose eyes don't light up when they see them. There isn't much companionship. There isn't much demonstration of affection. And it breaks my heart because that stays with that child. Like, what is wrong with me? Why, why, why aren't I, you know, deserving of love or, or attention or a hug? Well, however it might manifest. Again, if this child led and they're asking, we have a right to give them that cuddle, you know, and they do have a right to have it met. So I, I'm very much against practitioners who are, no, no, there's a soft toy to hug. That's that's not happening. No, that that says sends all the wrong messages to that distressed yeah, child. No, absolutely. And th and then I think linked to that as well, what I really like is the way that you talk about um, being child centred, because I think so. I think that being that child centred and child centred practice has well, I certainly think there is a danger of it becoming one of those phrases that we use. You know, a bit like, you know, I often hear the phrase, you know, we follow children's interests or, you know, that sort of thing. And and that that's great, but it often means different things to different people. You know, following children's interests will be one thing to one school or one setting or one member of staff. It will be something, could be something very different to another school or another member of staff. You know, so for example, you know, you end up just following maybe one small group of children's interest and everybody else has to kind of follow it. You know, that might be one scenario, whereas in, in another setting, you are really talking about following individual children's interests, perhaps. And I think the same with child-centeredness. Um, we often say we have very child-centered practice, but actually, what does that mean? And I, I, I really like the way that you unpick that and you, the way that you talk about actually being fully child-centered is a, is about emotion it's about feeling that emotion it's about it's it's about it's what we're just saying it's about love isn't it it's, it's about that relationship could you explain that a little bit more in a bit probably hopefully in a better way than I just have well it's just about knowing your children and being genuinely interested and excited to go on their journeys with them without your agenda oh I must have my adult hat on and I must know when to intervene and when to you know all these traditional little debates that we have in early years but truly to, for me I can only say it from my perspective and observing 
you know, staff in the past. It's just being excited, genuine interest and and sparking off those children's interest. Because usually it's not just one child with one specific interest because it spreads like wildfire anyway, because then another child gets involved, then another one, then that one enables it to take another turn. And then another child gets involved. What about this? And then you've got a layer cake of all this fantastic energy going on. And it's just like, oh, as an adult, how can I, if I'm allowed to, fit into this? And then how can I extend it if they want me to? So, yeah, for me, it comes from that passion for those children and, and the passion for what they are engaged in in that moment. And how it will turn out, we don't know and we don't care. There's no end product. It's just about how can I go on their journey with them and, and further enrich it and help them to take it on, on another level? And they do that very well for themselves, too, I must say. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the other, and then then finally, really, what I was going to, to, to ask you about, really, was about, uh, about what I often find, you know, when working with schools, there's a real pressure at the moment on teachers and practitioners in terms of particularly around the timetable and about our use of time. You know, so I work with lots of teachers who, you know, when we look at their timetable, it's absolutely chock-a-block full. You know, it's got it's got this happening in terms of a, an intervention. It's got the next thing might be um, a, a literacy input that is a particular scheme that the children might, you know, the staff are following and the children are following, um, followed by maths as a, as a particular set time in the day. And it can often be later on in the afternoon by the time they get any kind of free opportunity the children, I mean, to be, to actually explore and to follow their interests and to build those relationships in a different kind of way. Now, presumably, from from being aware of your work, that would be something that actually you you highlight as not being particularly healthy. Is that right? Am I? I don't want to put words in your mouth. Completely, completely, completely. And I spend a lot of my days every day saying exactly this. And until there's a massive overhaul of the education system as we know it, with an emphasis on child mental health and emotional well-being, we're stuck with this academic you know, outcomes driven education system. And it's really, I believe, making children ill. It really, from, from my perspective, and, and actually talking to these children and their parents, it's it's ridiculous. And you know, we sit down, say for example, with our daughter to help her with her maths homework. We can't do it. It's it's like hieroglyphics to us these days. And and you know, she was eight, nine at the time and now she's 10. It's obviously changed again but there's so much time sat down taking instructions maths English maths English maths English and all we're saying to children is if you're not good at this then you're not going to achieve anything in life that that's basically it because we're working them to achieve these tests at the end and that's it and it was it really struck me during lockdown when they kept sending all the work home and the online work. It only consisted of maths and English. And we complained and we said, where's the art? Where's the music? Oh, sorry, we, we haven't put that in. It's not, you know, top of our priorities. And we're like, no, no, you need to put it in there. We need balance. And they did address that. But they don't do any art at schools. If they do, it's viewed as a treat, but they're threatened with it being taken away if the classes don't behave. I think you know, for me, if I had a magic wand that I could swish, 
every school, every setting, every college, uni, workplace, whatever, we have to move towards a more trauma-informed way of working with our children. Through that, one of its five main principles is giving power to children. Not power over, but power with. What would you like to do today? What should we do to organise it? How do we plan it? What should we do? You know, asking them, making them responsible for their learning. And I guarantee you, maths and English in its traditional boring sense or how it's presented to them wouldn't really feature much. But we know because we're, you know, trained in this. Maths and English, science is everywhere, but it's how we make it fun and engaging to them. And I think that's all taken away. It's like stats, facts, stats, facts, stats, facts, exam prep. And it's destroying them. It really is. It's doing them so much harm because there is no balance there. And I think this needs to change. That's why I said we need to completely shake up the education system and start over and under it, underpinning every element of it, would be working in ways that are trauma-informed. Teachers, practitioners, understanding the neurobiology of stress and learning and behaviour and using this to plan the curriculum or, you know, the activities and experiences as opposed to making it all about academic prowess because we're getting it wrong it's ironic we talk about self-reg as being viewed as a soft skill but actually when we look at the 21st century skill set that are, you know being required of children especially in the future self-regulation and creativity two key skills but where are they there's no room left for them because it's all taken up with those you know the three r's and it, we need to redress the balance yeah absolutely Absolutely. Um, Mina, thank you so much for joining us. It's really, really interesting to, to chat to you about, about the book um, and, and also about your work more widely as well. Um, I certainly think, you know, what comes across loud and clear in, in all of the different things that you're saying is that particularly, you know, there is a moment now, isn't there, where this is all, all of this has always been important, but there is a moment now where actually it's crucial. It's absolutely crucial. You know, that when we're talking about these children and what they young children and what they've experienced in their short lives so far much of it through lockdowns it has to be said there is a real need there for this work to to kind of to to look differently at the way that we do things to to redress a balance i suppose of, of thinking about actually what skills do we need as adults to be working with young children within classrooms within earlier settings Adults who have an understanding of self-regulation, adults who understand actually what are we talking about when we mean when we're talking about children's behaviour and and you know what's happening as part of that, about young children's emotional well-being and about brain development. And I have to say, I think your your work and your latest book, I think as for teachers and practitioners, is the perfect way. Of, of really getting started on that journey, of, of, of building that understanding of actually, what is it that this role needs to be like for, for now, really, for these children? So thank you so much for joining us. I, I've really enjoyed chatting to you. And uh, yeah, thank you ever so much. You've got, you've got the book launch, haven't you, coming up? Is that right? I'm sure I saw that online. I do. When's that? in Clerkenwell in the most beautiful museum. I'm very excited and I've got lots of surprises lined up for guests as well fantastic well i'm sure it will go well um we send all of our best for the Thank book launch you. it sounds very exciting thank, thank you. you so much for joining us
It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And there you have it. Thank you very much to Dr. Minna Chongbaier for joining us on the podcast this week. In the interview, we mentioned Minna's new book, which is called The Neuroscience of the Developing Child. It is highly recommended. It's a great book. In the book, Minna explores many of the themes that we discussed um, as part of the interview, but really explores them in lots and lots of detail. It's a really helpful and really useful read. Um, so yeah, definitely recommend it. Um, that's about it for, from us for this week. Thank you very much again for listening um, and have a great week, everybody. See you next week. <laughs>